Welcome to Pragmatic Live, the podcast series for product management and product marketing professionals. I'm Lisa Sork Friedman, and today we're sharing part two of my conversation with Jonathan Lucky, product management and marketing pro. Recently, Jonathan shared his personal experiences implementing personas in a popular webinar titled Getting the Whole Company to Fall in Love with Your Personas. Jonathan's audience was so engaged that he didn't have enough time to answer all the questions. In fact, there were so many questions that we've been able to create two podcasts. Welcome, Jonathan. Yeah, uh, it's truly been an honor. It was a, it was an honor to uh, write in Pragmatic Marketer uh, uh, last year as well as present um, back in February. And so I just really thank you and appreciate the opportunity. We really appreciate it. Okay, we have another question from Meredith. Do you see personas as the responsibility primarily of marketing or of research? Wow, that's another good question. Um, it's funny, I was, I was having a, a discussion about this um, with my aunt. She, she has spent many years in marketing, way more than I have, and we talked about this. And then her experience is that personas have been in much – she comes out of much larger organizations that I have but that are extremely major. Um, where it's definitely, um, it belongs to, um, you know, a research team. Like they have a specific line of business that that's all they do. Um, uh, my, uh, Christian Steven, this lives pretty much under marketing, uh, marketing and product management. So, and that's where that, that responsibility mostly lays. It, it kind of depends. What I will say is that even if, say there's an entire research organization that is that is dedicated to this, you should still be the main herald and champion of it. And in fact, I would argue that you should still be doing your own research um, to corroborate theirs. They obviously have greater level of resources to do that research, um, but at least you can still do the ground level research of doing the interview. And the research people already have access to do surveys and such. So um, you can validate a lot of your information through them. So you have to work with that organization in terms of who owns it. Um, yeah. I, I would say regardless of who owns persona development, it should definitely be product management that is championing the process and is working tirelessly to make sure that they're being very market-focused on who this market is. And yeah. if re research is going off and getting the data, which is great, that saves you some time, but you don't want to be hands-off with that. You still need to, especially in this research phase, really being out there yourself talking to people as well so that you can get that picture that you need. So I, I, hope, that makes, I hope that makes sense. Yes, totally. Okay, we have a question from Chris who wants to know how the user persona differs from the buyer persona and which one is, mm. is better to start with. I love this question. Um, <laughs> I have been involved in many, many debates about this, um, even mm -hmm. even the concept of who's more important. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about the difference between the buyer and the user. Um, very generically, the, the, the user is the person who is going to be, um, well, using your product. They are the person that actually has the tangible problem that your product solves. So um, this person is going to be the person interacting with the product day in and day out. This person is also going to be the genesis of 
the justification why a buyer would buy the product in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So um, the user is the person that is going to be using it, and their their needs, their wants, and desires are ultimately going to drive the design of the product itself. So that's the user. The buyer is the person that is making the purchasing decision on the product itself. Now, um, in some cases, the buyer and the user could be the same exact person. But remember, they're still probably making different decisions for different reasons, which is why they are still two separate personas in a way, even if they're the same human being. So um, the buyer is making decisions. And the buyer makes, a makes his or hers purchasing decisions based off of certain buying criteria. So price is usually a big one. <laughs> but also, um, if, say, this is a business-to-business -business transaction, the buyer is thinking about things like compliance, cash flow, um, uh, strategic alignment, um, uh, 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 what else, uh, other events that are other events and things that are also in the pipeline for the business that the user doesn't necessarily have the visibility or the understanding of. So um, the user uses and the buyer buys. <laughs> um, the buyer um, in large business uh, business situations, the buyer probably has nothing to do with using the product whatsoever. They really don't have an intimate knowledge of the problem, and they really don't have an intimate knowledge of the product. They may know the effects of the problem, but they don't really understand what the problem is. So I hope that makes sense. Um, and so... Some would argue, okay, who's more important, the buyer or the user? And um, I would say they are both equally important. Um, I used to have a really big debate with some of the some of my with, with executives about who's more important. Of course, executives say the buyer is more important, right? Because they're the ones with the cash in their pocket. Yeah. <laughs> These are the folks that that sign the POs, and of course, in their view, they are the most important person, and that makes sense for them. Um, but, of course, you know, the uh, CTO, the engineering teams would go, the user's the most important person because if they didn't have the problem in the first place, the buyer would have never even whipped out their wallet. So um, they're equally incredibly important. And one thing's for sure is if you ignore a buyer or you ignore a user, you do so at your peril because then if you ignore buyers, then you'll have a fantastic product that either could not have the right price. It might have packaging that isn't quite the way it needs to be, pricing models that aren't the way they need to be, or maybe built into the product itself, there could have been certain buying criteria, like legal requirements, um, infrastructural requirements, um, just simple line of business requirements that every corporation has that a product should just have in it that only the buyer knows about. Um, and you risk, and that jeopardizes the entire sale if you ignore the buyer. And then also, if you ignore the buyer, then your sales and marketing people are no longer equipped with how to have create meaningful messages to the buyer, and they're not equipped to be able to have, uh, or the sales people aren't equipped to have meaningful conversations with the buyer. And likewise, if you were to ignore the user, then you're going to have a product that is A, could A, well, the buyer said they wanted these 10 things in there, and the buyer goes ahead and buys it, but guess what? Nobody in the company uses it. So it becomes uh -huh. a huge waste of time for the business, a huge waste of time for the company, 
So when it comes time to renew the contract and um, the salesperson calls up the CIO and goes, hey, or whoever the buyer is and goes, hey, you want to renew your contract? And he, and he goes, I don't know what that product is. I don't know what that is. And he calls down to the, to the people who are using it, and they go, what about this product? Do you guys use this? They go, we, have not, we haven't touched this thing in years. And then now you have lost the retention of the customer. So um, both are really important. You, you can't ignore one or the other. You can't really even prioritize one or the other. You've got to really understand your users, and you've got to really understand your buyers in order for the product to be um, financially and financially successful and popular among your users. Yes, I think those are valid points because you uh, risk you risk peril if you ignore either one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a valid point. Well, and you can that. articulate that to, to business leaders to say, you know, this uh, personas are an exercise of risk mitigation, if you think about mm-hmm. it. Because mm-hmm. um, if you – if you, why would an organization not want to know how customers could potentially react? Uh, why would a business not want to know what kind of goals and aspirations are changing among the market base? And if you don't know this information – then there's a risk that what you're developing today, and by the time it's completed or, you know, or by the time it goes to market six months or a year from now, that it's actually not what the market needed in the first place. And that could wind up being millions of dollars lost and wasted on something. So understanding the market very deeply from both buyers and users, it mitigates the risk um, for business that businesses take when, when setting out on new projects and new ventures. Good points. All right, Tracy writes, many of our customers are international. Visiting them is more difficult. Do you have any mm-hmm. thoughts about phone calls and emails rather than customer visits? So I guess there yeah. still be, you know, a, a type of customer visit. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a similar challenge that we've had because um, we had customers in 46 countries. Um, I'm based in oh. the United States, but... Mm-hmm. A large uh, portion of our customer base is all over Europe, um, the U.K., Sweden, Germany, and so forth. Um, and so it is a bit of a challenge. to. I, I certainly didn't hop on a plane and go to all of these countries. <laughs> so um, yeah. so in, in absence of being able to meet, um, yeah, you can do phone calls. Try to do a Skype call So at least and, and do video so at least you can see the person with their eyeball. Try to make it as as interactive as you can. Um, what you don't want to do is if you have the opportunity to go and you don't take it because making a phone call is easier. Don't do that. If you have the opportunity to go, go. Get your passport and go to Germany, go to Switzerland, go to China, go to Australia, wherever, and meet that customer with their eyeballs because you might even discover um, certain cultural nuances that you just wouldn't have understood um, by sitting on the phone with that individual. Um, yeah. there's some, I've heard of other alternatives, though I'm not a huge advocate for this, where um, you have people in those locations um, doing that, that you actually send out to do the interviews for you. I'm not a very huge advocate for it, to be honest, because this really needs to be kind of firsthand knowledge. Um, okay. But in a pinch, that's something that you could do. Um, the other thing is uh, field trips. 
So <laughs> say your salespeople are, do, are closing a big deal in Brussels, um, and you know that there's about 10 people you could interview in Brussels, you go, hey, salespeople, um, I want to accompany you and be in that meeting and just to be there to nod my hand and say, and say yes. Um, and <laughs> whenever the customer asks a question. And a salesperson will never reject having a subject matter expert in the room with them. <laughs> so, and if all you do is say yes, and then what you do for your rest of your time in that location, go do your interviews. Yeah. Um, so, or you're going to a conference. Um, anytime when you're traveling, use it as an opportunity to actually go out and meet and do your visits while you're out there. You're still working. You're still yeah. doing the other thing you're there for but you're just maximizing the time and the money while you're there. Right. Yeah, I know we, we make it a point whenever we're in a town for a specific meeting or event, you, you know, you're, you're yeah. to schedule some Nahito visits as well. So we all yeah. do that when we're out of the office. And like yeah. you said, it's just a great way to maximize your, your time and the money spent. And I don't always advocate this particular strategy, but uh, uh, back in August, I think I mentioned this in the webinar, um, I went to a wedding. Uh, I was going to a wedding in Cincinnati, uh, which is where I'm from, and um, and, and uh, I figured, hey, you know what? While I'm in Cincinnati, I know there's tons of people I could interview. So what I did is I just left an extra two days early to go up to Cincinnati and spend that time with customers. I didn't... Uh, I didn't necessarily use vacation time because what was I doing? I was spending those days with customers. But what was yeah. great about that with the company is the company didn't pay a dime for travel in that. So they actually benefited by it because all it costed was some of my time, but the company got real-life actionable intelligence from an area that they didn't have to pay a dime to travel for. So just a strategy that, that, you, can, that you can implement, you know, do it. Do it however you can. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. I, I like that. You know, definitely adding value. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wherever you can. That's right. Okay, we have another question. Uh, well, this one is from Susan, and she asks, are there any good sources for generic completed personas? She says, for example, a patient hmm. at a hospital, a shopper at Walmart, things like that. Yeah, um, you can you you can find them. Um, I've seen them. I'm trying to think off the top of my head some different sources. Um, there's a research company. Um, maybe it was Gardner. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm sorry, but there are some research companies that actually um, just do persona research, um, and they kind of just do it, and then they have the this research available. Um, for purchase. Um, and so it could either be you just purchasing the research itself um, or perhaps they've already created these personas based off of what they've done. Um, and then that's, again, information that you can purchase. Typically, I've, typically I've seen you've got to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, that is something that you could definitely do. And you could use that as a starting point um, for, for your research. I would definitely advocate that you that that you don't stop there and just buy a persona and then use it. Um, you you should use that at least as kind of your base, so you're not starting from zero. And look at their research and how they developed it, and then you go off and you and you augment that research. 
or yeah. at least you customize it to your market because the the people that they talk to the the every the, the in the way they talk to them and the questions they ask may not have been the same thing you would have done. So you still need to do you can do it, but I I would advocate that it should shouldn't be a replacement for first-hand research. Yes. I think that's good advice. Yeah. All right. In a question from Jason, he asks, is there a suggested maximum amount of personas to have for a product? He said, we currently have more than 30 personas. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a lot to me. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely way more personas than uh, that I've ever developed at, uh, in my history. So that's very, very nice. Um you know, uh, philosophically, personas should be – the number of personas your company has should be driven by the market. Um, so if really out of your research you all have determined that um, that you have 30 uh, unique individuals that you're in business for, buyers and users, um, so be it. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, that's, that's the reality of your, of your market and your customer base. Um, and, and, and really, I applaud you because you, you've managed to get to that level of, um, of precision when it comes to understanding the different people um, that you're in business for. So, obviously, you can't, you can't build sales questions off of 30 different personas, and you can't, um, build, you can't completely build all of your success criteria for your, for your, for your features and your user stories off of 30 people, and you certainly can't create 30 different marketing methods. (laughs) So um, what I would advise is that you prioritize um, the personas. And um, and, and in in the classic pragmatic way, I would say that you prioritize them based off of value and impact. So um, whichever personas have the highest levels of value, and uh, value could be unique to you. So that could be potential for revenue, um, mm-hmm. spending power, share of wallet, um, whatever that you consider valuable uh, to you. And an impact could be the, the pervasiveness. How big is that market in the first place? So if it's a, if it is a market that has a lot of cash and you guys already have a ton of, of stake in that market in terms of revenue, um, and this market is pretty sizable, then you probably want to prioritize that to number one. So maybe you want to look at and say, okay, we're going to prioritize the top five personas, um, top five buyers and top five users. Okay. In another question, Cliff asks, do you have any thoughts on the best way to request in-person customer interviews to get things started? Um, he says, for example, hmm. email, call, sales exec intros for uh, existing customers, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. I've always found um, calling people at first can be quite awkward because especially if you're not a salesperson, you're kind of a little bit nervous, um, yeah. but it can work. Um, but obviously you have to get past that person's skepticism because they're just going to assume you're trying to sell them something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you so you have to – so calling – you. It works extremely well. What I typically do is do like a soft email um, uh-huh. directly to that person, and I go, hey, I am Jonathan Lucky. I, I lead product strategy, or I am in market research 
um, for uh, for my company, and um, we're undergoing a major research initiative over the next couple of months where we really want to get a deeper understanding of our customers. Um, looking at your profile, I find that uh, you have a lot of information, a lot of experience that could add a lot of value to this research. Um, I'd love to just spend an hour with you and, and, and to talk more. It, it requires nothing of you, um, no commitments, no sale, or anything like that. Doesn't, I don't, you don't have to really write a letter that, that that's that long. But right. um, it could be really that simple. Um, sometimes yeah. just a LinkedIn message. And um, you never know. Someone will come back and go, you know what, sure. <laughs> um, if you want, try targeting people that are really active. So going back to LinkedIn, if it's if in if you're joining a group, a LinkedIn group that has a lot of your target market in this LinkedIn group, and you notice that um, Jessica really posts all the time in this group, um, that's probably someone you should talk to because apparently yeah. she's very active and she's willing to share. So she would probably be very receptive to an email or a phone call and would be itching to to, to give you whatever's inside of her her, her mind. So. Um, you know, that's kind of the way you could do it. Um, a soft email usually works or a phone call. Introductions are always the best because um, even going back to a sales side of things, that softens the, the, the blow a little bit anyway. So, Okay. Amy wants to know, in a B2B scenario, is it as valuable to create personas for the buying customer versus the end user? Um, yeah, oh, this, yeah, this is a good follow-on question from what we were talking about earlier. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is valuable to create um, personas for the buyer. Um, again, you really want to make sure you're creating very strong, fleshed-out personas for both people um, because, um, A, you've got to understand the buyer. Um, you've got to get into the mind of the buyer. Uh, the product could be as wonderful as you want it to be, but if you're if, – if you don't really understand what the buyer wants out of it, they're not going to write the check. Um, you know, that, that's that's just the reality. It's not there, there won't be any revenue. So um, there's a lot of value in understanding the buyer, um, and you also want to make sure you understand the different buyers. Um, sometimes, and, and I can be at fault for this too. We get in our minds that the only buyer is the user's boss. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily true, especially in a B2B transaction. There could be multiple buyers that are influencing, because a buyer is anyone that's influencing the purchasing decision. So yeah. um, that buyer could also be the CFO. The CFO has some sort of stake in it, right, because they might want the, – the CIO has it in their mind that they want certain terms, net 30, pay monthly, I'd rather pay OPEX versus CAPEX or whatever. Um, another buyer could be the end user because the end user is influencing the buyer and they have certain criteria. Or maybe they have their own smaller budget that comes out of the their boss's budget or something uh, weird and wonderful like that. So um, another buyer could be the ITIL council, you know, some other group. Uh, the, another buyer could be the people who, the department in the organization that regulates vendors. So if you don't know who these people are and what they want, um, your company will never even become a vendor for the customer that you want to attract. 
So, um, you know, you really want to sit down and think about all of the different buyers. And, yeah, make sure you understand them deeply in addition to the users. Mm -hmm. Okay. Amanda asks, do you have any tips for someone who is tasked with both persona building and market research? Yeah, actually, um, because that was definitely (laughs) me. Um, (laughs) Okay. Yeah, because I I definitely owned both the research component and the actual writing of the personas, the building of the personas. Um, I would advocate getting buy-in from your colleagues, your peers, and your your decision makers as early as possible. Um, Because what you don't want to risk happening is that because you're the person writing the persona and you're the person that did all the research in your head, it's all in your brain and in your mind. And so when you go around talking about it, you just want to mitigate the risk that people will think that this is only coming from your mind, if you understand. Um, You want to make sure that if you get their buy-in very early on and be very transparent about your research, when you've actually come to them with the result, the end result, which is the persona, they actually won't be very surprised <laughs> yeah. because they have already been involved in the effort. And it makes you not feel like you're alone in it either, and it makes them feel like they have skin in the game when it comes to making sure we're on the mark with who our target market is. So I would definitely say as soon as you can, get the buy-in. Um, other tips, uh, you, you have to be skeptical of yourself. You have to ask yourself the question constantly, did I get this right? Um, am, I, am I injecting my own opinion in this? Am I being biased right now? Um, you've got to do that because if you're the person that's owning the research and the end result, you, it's very easy to pollute yourself <laughs> or to pollute the results with your own um, assumptions and your thoughts and feelings. So keep asking yourself, did I assume this? Did I validate this? Is this right? Should I retest this? Um, you've got to do that so that way you, you don't pollute the, the output of it, as it were. So I, I'd say those are my two biggest tips. Good tips. All right, we have a question from Susan. This is an interesting one to me. Yeah. How do you handle the buyer versus user needs for free services? The buyer versus user's needs for free services. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And, you know, it's actually a little bit of a knot a while back we were trying to think through when we had a really huge initiative around services because we were really um, some years ago in this um, push to move from just being software to also having a service component that would be the value add on top of the service. So, which as many software, B2B software companies, that's kind of the goal, right? You want to be a solutions provider, not just a software provider. So, um you know, the thing is that you really want to try in your mind think about who the user is in this, and the user of your service is essentially the, um, is essentially the, the people that the service is getting implemented for. I'll give you an example. So say um, we're implementing um, our software solution into the business. Um, and we bring in a consultant that's a part of this. And so the consultant in, in the consultant's brain is effectively the product, right, the service that you're providing. That consultant is going to be working with the customer's internal team. So maybe their IT people or their business process people or their change management people. 
So those people are the users <laughs> because they're using the consultant's brain to get the best practices necessary um, in order to implement uh, implement the product or implement the solution. So I would think about it that way when you're thinking about buyers and users is who, what is exactly your service and who does that service interact with? And so whoever that service is interacting with, those are your users. And those people have certain things that they need. And in this case, they probably have certain things that they need to learn. So then now, aha, those are requirements. Those are features. It's still a product. It's just instead of it being a physical good, it's, it's, it's something that we're doing for them. So think about it that way. In terms of the buyer, um, buyers, when it comes to services, they're buying outcomes. Um, they're buying an outcome. They're not buying a product. They're buying an outcome. They, they want more money, more efficiency, uh, more profit, more something. So that something that they're getting out of it, that outcome, that's part of the buying criteria for the buyer. So think about that with the buyer um, a consult for the, when you're thinking about your services. Um, mm -hmm. That's usually how we think about it and how we go about it. Yeah. Okay. Now, the following question is similar to one we had earlier um, where we talked about the company that had more than 30 personas. Um, mm -hmm. Josh, Josh asks, what's the right number of personas to have? So we talked about if mm -hmm. you have 30 personas, you really need to prioritize them based on value and input. But for mm -hmm. someone who's starting from scratch, are there – well, how many, how many personas did you all have? Let's start there. Yeah. How many did um, you create? So initially, as we started doing the research, um, I found out that, okay, we clearly have two different types of people. Types of people. Mm -hmm. um, we have the uh, Jen, the analyst, and we have Dan, the IT admin. So um, they, because at first we used to think of them as one individual because when we thought about our users. But in reality, um, Dan, the IT person, was a very different individual. This was an individual that was focused on um, just trying to get stuff done. They're just trying – this our product is really a, a piece of what all of the different products that they manage um, and all the different stuff that they manage, this is just a small piece of it, and it doesn't have a ton of mind share in, in, in Dan's day, um, you know, for example. So it's something that he uses and maintains. Jen, the analyst, is a little bit different. Jen, the analyst, is um, she's not an IT person with many hats. Um, she is there specifically to provide um, groundbreaking business intelligence insights. So our solution, our software, is really what she loves because this is going to help her um, do her job more effectively. So she's going to spend a lot more time in this tool, and she is going to manage this tool, and she's going to really spend a lot of energy maximizing and eking out every single little feature and every single little thing it can do in order to do her job better. So we, so we ended up realizing, okay, we have two personas. So then we kept going. And then we realized, um, well, these – because originally and traditionally – when we were marketing, we were marketing to the user who would then have to go and convince the buyer um, to actually uh, purchase the solution. <laughs> but we were like, well, we need to market to buyers um, instead of just users. So um, doing more research, we understood that 
there is someone that makes a purchasing decision at the level that we make our purchasing decisions. So uh, at, that, at the price points that our product was offered at or is offered at. So um, we said, okay, this is usually someone that is director or CIO level um, through our research. And thus began the uh, Connor, the CIO, was born. <laughs> so now we're at three. And so as we kept going, then we realized that Connor, the CIO, isn't the only person who makes decisions. So we've begun the process of going, well, who else makes, helps make the decision? Well, then there's uh, Sherry, the CFO. <laughs> uh-huh. and, um, and then we go, okay, well, also a big initiative in the company is we want to expand our partner program. Well, that emerges a whole different group of people that have a whole separate need, um, that have a whole separate set of needs. Um, those are our partners. So thus, Peter the partner was born. <laughs> okay. So um, you just kind of, as you keep going, um, it's an evolution. You realize that there's one, but really there's many. And based off of um, your priorities and your strategic focus and the composition of the marketplace, um, new people are born, you know, just kind of organically, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. All right. We, we have a question from Chris who asks, if you sell a platform, how do you break out products? And he says, for example, do you, does a product manager at Salesforce use different personas for different verticals or products? Yeah, I give you a really good example. And actually, I think I, I think I learned this example from a pragmatic course, if I if I remember correctly. Um, so, if you've ever used Google Maps, um, and you plug in your directions, and you hit search, and they put up your little route on the map, right? So, um, notice at the top, you see three buttons. You see a driving car button, you see a bus button, and you see a walking person button. Those are three different personas. You're still using the same product. Everyone is using Google Maps. But it's actually, those are three different personas and literally the design or at least the path to the customer's achievement in using that product um, differs and changes based off of their selection. So they almost kind of opted themselves into telling us what their persona is in a sense. So um, it's all Google Maps. It's all the same product. But in a sense, the the value or the design or some of the, the features of the path to the customer's success is actually a little bit different depending on who they are. So that's an example. Um, tools like Salesforce and HubSpot, um, it could be it, it could be something very similar. You probably would want to have different personas for different aspects of Salesforce. Salesforce is huge, and um, you're probably going to have a set of personas for the marketing automation components in Salesforce, and you're probably going to have a different set of personas for the CRM and sales side of the Salesforce platform. I venture to say, though I don't know, they probably do. I'm sure they do. They must be. Um, because how else? Um, these are very different modules and very different systems that different people are using and spending their time in. So um, think about it that way. If you look at a certain feature set that you have in your existing product, what are the personas that spend the most of their time there? Um, and, and, and you'll find that those people will be living in that feature set 
where a whole different set of personas are living and breathing and having fun in a whole different feature set. Okay. All right, we have one last question, and this is similar to one that we talked about earlier as well. Um, yeah. But maybe, you know, we have a little additional clarification. So this question is from Colin, who asks, who should maintain persona profiles? And I know we have mm. talked, you know, the, the previous question was about, um, you know, are personas primarily the responsibility of marketing or research? And you said that yeah. you've seen both, but that product management ultimately should be the champion. Um, yeah. I'm assuming then uh, that product management management would be the, the team that maintains persona pro profiles? Yeah, I would say so. Um, okay. Mainly, or, or at least they should be the ones driving the maintenance of um, so, so, for example, I mean, literally for us, um, product management maintained the personas um, and kept them up to date. We knew where they were. We knew the research, and we did the mind mapping to match, to match, um, to build out our actual story of who these people are, right? So, um, and say in, a, in another organization where maybe a, a whole different groups actually write the personas, it should still be um, it should still be product management driving the maintenance. So they're the ones that are actually initiating the meetings, <laughs> if as it were, to actually um, to actually undergo the change or the updates. They should be the ones, product management should be the one initiating the um, the research effort and guiding and guiding the research effort as well. So um, even if they're not going to be directly writing them, product management should still be the people driving the initiative around it. Okay. Great to know. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, that covers all the questions. You can see there were a ton that people yeah. had submitted that we didn't have time for. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, have a great day, Jonathan. All right. Thank you so much, Lisa. Have a great one. Thank you. You too. Bye now. Bye. To learn more about the value of personas, check out our website, pragmaticmarketing.com. We've got articles, webinars, ebooks, and white papers to help you become more market driven. You can also check out our podcast notes to find links to Jonathan Lucky's webinar and to an article on the same topic in Pragmatic Marketer. 